talked about creation of man, creation of all things, and the creation of man and some of the implications of that. And now the dark, the dark side of things, of how we turned away from God. So let's start uh, with prayer. Lord, thank you for your grace to us in Christ. Thank you that you come to us today to reveal yourself and to uh, nourish us on yourself, to, to uh, build us up in our faith in Christ. We thank you and praise your name and rest in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. By the way, congratulations. <laughs> Baby and mom are doing great? They're doing very well, thank you. Good, good. Yeah, that's wonderful. Eric just had a new baby. <laughs> yeah, so that's wonderful. Oh, boy. <laughs> Number four. All right, the uh, fall of man is, as most of you probably know, recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3. Um, the prohibition of as we would call it, or God's command to uh, Adam was given in chapter 2 in verses uh, 15 and following when he put him in the garden to work and keep it. And he said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And on the surface of things, it seems perhaps... uh, Huge that everything would rest on one piece of fruit. You know, like the whole destiny of the world rests on one piece of fruit. But we have to understand what this stands for. Uh, this stands for their whole relationship. It really stands for the whole relationship of mankind with God. And it represented our trust in God. It represented our worship of God. It re- represented our submission to God. The command has... Unlimited dignity because of the one who gives it. God himself giving the command. And it demands then their trust, uh, love, their reverence. And the seriousness of the disobedience uh, is death in the fullest sense. You shall surely die. Um, We read even in Revelation of the second death. So that uh, physical death is just the sign of the ultimate terrible death of being cut off from relationship to God forever and the, the eternal agony of being separated from God. So each of the, our pathways to uh, death is just a, a signal of the uh, sinfulness that we have and the ultimate curse that we are under because of our disobedience to God. So um, that was the uh, command given in chapter 2. As I say, it stands for the whole of our relationship with God. So when he, Adam and Eve took the fruit... They were basically saying, we reject you completely, God. We reject your authority. We reject your love. We will not trust you. We will not put our lives into your hands. We, we take our lives in our own hands and we walk away from you. So it was the ultimate response to God, the ultimate response of refusal of all that he is um, in that um, act. And so the actual event itself recorded in chapter uh, 3 And interestingly, you'll see uh, the very first doctrine that's denied, which is interesting because this is is repeated itself in the church again and again uh, and in philosophy. Um, When he he comes to the woman, the serpent, Satan, uh, 
taking up the serpent and using the serpent, uh, said to the woman in chapter 3, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? She said, well, we may eat of the, tr- uh, the fruit of the trees, but we shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden or touch it lest we die. Now, some say she's adding to the command, but that's probably a good part of the command that she would understand that you're not going to, if you're not going to eat it, don't touch it, you know, just stay away from it, right? Not that she'd become a legalist. Some people would say, well, she's already made a mistake because she became a legalist. But I would take it as a good response to say, hey, if the Lord's told us not to eat it, we're not going to touch it. You know, we're not going to go, we're not going to sit there and, you know, hold it and, you know, that kind of thing. Just stay away from the tree, okay? So I think it was a, a good response to, to the command. But notice in verse 4, the very first thing he says, you will not surely die. So the first doctrine denied is the doctrine of judgment. There is no judgment. There is no punishment. God will not respond to you in the way that he has said. Which, of course, is to challenge the word of God because God has declared his word. He's declared what the truth is, what reality is. Now Satan is denying that reality. He is denying that there is judgment, that, there is, uh, that God will respond to them in this way. So it is a lie, and in effect, he's saying God is lying to you. And he is saying right away, God does not have your best interest at heart. He's faking it, okay? This is a scarecrow. He really is not going to do anything. And he even goes on to explain then... Uh, Of course, it's a challenge, as I say here, to God's words. It's a challenge to judge God's word. It's a challenge to be a God yourself, right? To stand over God's word and declare whether you want God's word or not. He offers a rival revelation, another uh, interpretation of life besides what God has given him. And so, uh, what God has given her. And so, this alternative interpretation or view of life is what he sets before her. You don't have to view things from God's perspective. You can view things from your own perspective. You can take control of your own life. And then he indicates in verse 5, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so, uh, right here, he plants suspicion in her heart. Seeks to plant suspicion. She could have resisted, but she didn't. Neither did Adam. Um, In other words, the suspicion, God doesn't have your best interest at heart. He doesn't really care about you. In fact, he knows, he's holding out on you. He knows that if you would eat of this fruit, not only will you not die, but you'll become like God. Think of that. You could just feel the weight of this pressing against her that all of life lies before you in a whole new wonderful way lies before you if you'll eat this fruit. And what did God say? Did he really tell you you'll die? Oh, gosh. That's just the kind of thing he would do. You know, it's that kind of feel like going behind his back and saying, that's what God's like. I'm telling you, he's not out for your good. You know, all this stuff is available for you. You can have everything. You can be like him. Just don't believe what he said about it. And of course, it, it makes you cringe when you think of, as we view all the horrors of human history have flowed from that disobedience. So how, how huge is that lie? You shall not die. It, nothing will happen when you think of the whole flow of human history as mankind turned away from God and became unlike God. He fell to his you know, death and to hurting and abusing and 
everything else to one another uh, through this. So um, that was the temptation. A rival interpretation, denying judgment, uh, turning the whole thing upside down and saying, not only will you not be judged, but life awaits you. So God's promise of life is submit to me, listen to me, eat of the fruit of the uh, other trees and don't touch this fruit. Live by my word and you shall live. You shall have life. But we did not believe him. And I think that this is, uh, this is basically the root of all of our sin. Because actually, as Pascal says, uh, every man seeks happiness. Even the man that hangs himself is seeking happiness of some sort. And so man strikes out to gain happiness. He doesn't believe he can find happiness with God, just like Adam and Eve came to believe, that they couldn't find happiness with God. And I think the whole of Scripture is basically this story. Man says, I cannot trust you with my life. And in history, God comes back, sacrifices his son and says, oh, yes, you can. Oh, yes, you can trust me by the demonstration of his own love and giving his own son for us. And that's what captures us back for God, is the love of God shown through Jesus Christ. So the whole of the Bible is kind of built around that whole thing. Our turning away from God, not trusting him with our lives, God coming to us through his son, demonstrating how trustworthy he is, and that winning us back to himself. So Paul can say, the love of Christ controls me now. That love of Christ is what has captured me. And we've now been caught back to the love of God. Well, it shows the, uh, uh, in verse 6 and following, uh, what I have C here, the disobedience, that she saw it, she delighted in it, she ate it. And James seems to be following this. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his desire. Desire gives birth to sin. Sin brings forth death the pathway of our disobedience to God. Um, we, we think there's life in it. We, that's why that the only reason we disobey God is we're trying for life. We're trying to gain something. We're trying for significance, whatever it is. And uh, we destroy ourselves in it. So there's man's fall. Uh, Paul, uh, as I have here in Romans 1, gives uh, the, the course of human sin uh, in this way. He talks about how the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then he says, here's the fundamental sin of man. Uh, Looking at mankind as a whole, God revealing himself in creation very clearly. He says in verse 19 there, what can be known about God is plain to them. God has shown it to them. His attributes, as he says, have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. We have no excuse to say, well, I didn't know there was a God. When we stand before him, he'll say it'll be plain that we just wouldn't listen. We wouldn't admit what we saw. But there's verse 21. They knew God. They did not honor him or give thanks to him. And they exchanged the glory of God for idols. So... Here's a picture of what we've done is to turn away. We, we wouldn't honor him, love him, adore him. Basically, Romans 1 is saying uh, we wouldn't worship God. You know, we, we wouldn't enjoy him. We wouldn't adore him. We, we wouldn't give him praise. Uh, we turn to other things to find our significance, to give our time and energy and our 
passions to besides God. Uh, So he was not the center of our attentions, the center of our love, the center of our purposes anymore. We found other things to make the centerpiece of our lives. And so, uh, page 19, our condition, having looked at it briefly, and this very brief, of course, from Genesis and then Romans, this description of our turning away from God and refusing Him, here's the result um, of our condition. Relationships are broken within ourselves. We uh, have... We have this sinfulness, this tendency to to self. Uh, interestingly, in Second Corinthians uh, five fifteen, when it's talking about the uh, salvation, he says he came so that we would no longer live for ourselves. Okay, there is uh, really the summary of sin. We basically live for ourselves. Uh, ahead of anything or anybody else. And that's why we hurt people. And that's why we refuse to give ourselves away to people in, uh, in every case because we're out for self as opposed to God. And these scriptures just that I have here are just talking about the sinfulness uh, that, that we have. Um, then, of course, this breaks us off with one another. Um, Titus 3 uh, how we pass our days with malice and envy. We're hated by others and hating one another, as he describes it. Then the terrible list in Romans 1, 28, filled with unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, murder, strife, deceit, gossips, haters of God, insolent, haughty, uh, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. So... Uh, Romans 3, the same thing as Paul's describing the sinfulness of man. He describes the sinfulness of our tongues, the sinfulness of uh, our desire to hurt one another, etc. And so um, all the miseries and hurts and broken, anything that has happened in history, both on a family level, personal level, political level, between nations, uh, just this huge panorama of horror that's gone on in humankind, we'd say that's because we've been cut off. We've cut ourselves off from God. It's part of our fallen condition. Um, so our relationships with one another are broken. Obviously, our relationship with God has been broken. That's the center of it all, as we say on page 20 here. So as Paul says in Ephesians 4, alienated from the life of God, or Ephesians 2, separated, alienated, those ideas. So that Romans 3 says no one seeks for God, basically. And our, our view then of mankind is not mankind, you know, arrows pointing toward God, seeking God, but mankind abandoning God. And then because of that, mankind at each other's throat, okay? Um, so that there is, you know, evil toward one another. Abandonment of God means that we have this kind of relationship to one another. So the picture in the Bible is mankind leaving God, God coming after man. Not mankind coming to God and God kind of saying, well, I'll take you and you and you, but not the other ones. But rather that all of mankind abandoning God and then God in his mercy coming after man and drawing him back to himself. 
Um, so it's pure mercy. And it's amazing because God is the one against whom the wrong has been done. And God has all power and God has power to judge. But in mercy and humility, God comes after man. And you think, why? Why would you do that? Why would you come to rescue us when we had despised you in such a way? But that's the way, uh, that's how God is and what God is, is is revealed in Scripture. So, uh, because of our alienation, because we will not seek Him, Romans 1 says the wrath of God is revealed against this ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. There is an alienation and we are under God's judgment. Further, number four down there, we're at odds with creation itself. And the creation he describes here as, as one broken. And you heard me mention uh, in, from the pulpit last Sunday, if you were there, that uh, our creation is basically in a wheelchair or in the dungeon. And what's it going to be like when the wheelchair is gone and creation springs forth and runs in the new heavens and the new earth? But now, as beautiful and glorious as creation is, uh, Paul says it's subjected to futility and it's, we're at odds with creation. That's why we have disease in this creation. That's why there are tornadoes and earthquakes. That's why the creation is not fully supportive of our life here. But many times... You'd say creation destroys us. It's a sign. Uh, Lewis would call it the red light that, that always is telling us that there's something wrong with this world. There's something wrong between us and God because of what creation, uh, its testimony against us. And as we, uh, we talked about this, uh, that here man is the crown of creation. So when that crown was broken, all of creation is broken, and now that creation in some ways acts against man and uh, is part of the destruction for man. And he's supposed to be the king of creation, the leader of creation, and actually, look, he, I mean, he's become in some ways the slave of creation, you know, being destroyed by creation. Um, so everything from our relationship to God, to one another, within ourselves, our environment, everything is broken, everything, because we broke off from God. Um, and so, uh, our relationships are broken. B talks about how our, we are guilty before him. <clears throat> and there are many aspects of our guilt that we need to explore because it's easy for us to, uh, to justify ourselves and to make excuses for our, our sinfulness. Um, first of all, sin involves the inside as well as the outside. Jesus shows this in the Sermon on the Mount. And he talks about anger and murder, or he talks about lust and adultery. And he says that murder is, that there's a, there's a spectrum of murder, but it begins when you're angry with somebody and want to hurt them, want to, don't want to do them good. The minute I don't want to do them good, I'm in league with murder. Okay? The minute I want to misuse a person of the opposite sex, I'm in league with adultery, just like that. So they're, they're one and part of the same thing. Maybe there are degrees, you know, there are worse things. But our, our, our inside thoughts and motives and attitudes are involved in our sinfulness. And that alone should make us tremble. Because most of us would say, okay, what if I showed your thoughts this week on a screen? You'd say, okay, I'm leaving town, you know. I will not ever be back, ever. I will be, I will be gone forever. Just, just from one week, you know, of what goes on in our hearts and our minds. 
And so we must understand that those are the kinds of things that bring us before God and show our guilt. You know, maybe easy from one perspective to say, well, okay, I didn't hit anybody this week. I literally didn't hit. And I could say, well, I hadn't hit anybody in years, you know. So I guess I'm not a murderer. I guess I'm not guilty of that anymore because I just don't hit people. Well, no. How, how many times have you refused to help somebody? How many times do you not feel kindness and love towards somebody? How many times have you focused on yourself instead of someone else? All of these are a part of our desire for self instead of others. It's a part of my murderous heart that still is not completely made clean. Then, as uh, Jesus talks in number two here in Matthew 10, sin involves every word that comes out of our mouths. Uh, he says the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And uh, he says that uh, we will be judged for every careless thing that proceeds from our mouth. So that really, from one perspective, God can just do, uh, render judgment based on our words. Based on what we have said to one another. Because that reveals who we are. So instead of thinking, gosh, I haven't done this and this and this, we have to think, oh, but what I've thought and then, oh, what I've said, what I've thought and what I've said. We're on page 21, by the way. Um, So sin shows itself in those ways, and these are just as important to God as what we do. And then thirdly, not only this, but sin involves not only what we do wrong, but what we don't do that we should. We tend to focus on, well, I'm not doing this and this and this. But sin is also refusing to do what God commands. We love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. That's the fundamental summary of the word. So that would mean a constant discipline and delight in prayer. Constant eager heart to worship Him. Constant feelings of awe and joy in Him. Unflagging desire to know Him in His Word. Holding Him preeminent in our affections above everything and everybody else at all times. That's the requirement of God's law in terms of love. Or loving our neighbors as ourselves. That means constant kindness and thoughtfulness and servanthood toward every person. Constant feelings of good toward every person. Constant concern for and devotion to the needs of others. Constant joy in giving ourselves away to others. And you just think, I'm nowhere close. If I was going to come before God and say, oh, I've had all these constant good feelings toward people, well, you just think, no, I, I wouldn't even give an hour of my life, you know, in that regard, to say that that would stand up to God's judgment in that way. So sin is much more serious than we think. It involves our thinking. It involves what we say. It involves what we uh, omit doing, not only what we do. And then to think what James says in uh, B under number 3, that if you break one part of the law, you break the whole of it. Imagine somebody, uh, a, a woman's about to be married, she's a beautiful white dress, and somebody foolishly has an inkwell and just spills it over the front of her dress. And imagine somebody saying, hey, the rest of the dress is okay. The back's still white. The veil's still white. I didn't get it. It's okay. You say, you ruined the dress, you see. You ruined the dress. And so God says, at any point when we disobey his law, the law is broken, period. You know, we can't say, well, I hadn't done this or this, where I know some people that have done that thing. I know someone that did that, but I hadn't done that. You know, that kind of thinking. That's not how God sees it. He sees his whole authority is bound up in his law. So 
it's the same as with the tree at the beginning in Genesis 3. The whole of God's authority was bound up in that command. And so any part of his law represents the whole of God. It represents the whole of his authority. And at any point when we break it, we have completely turned away from God. We have refused him. So to begin splitting hairs about what I have and haven't done, you know, unless we've been perfect at every point, the whole of it is just trashed in terms of our life. And so as God concludes, uh, every single person is guilty before God. All have sinned, Romans 3. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Now, notice at the top of page 22, the summary that um, gives us our sinful condition, question 18. What is sinful about man's fallen condition? The sinfulness of that fallen condition is twofold. First, in what is commonly called original sin, there's the guilt of Adam's first sin with its lack of original righteousness and the corruption of his whole nature. Second, are all the specific acts of disobedience that come from original sin. So we're born with this nature bent away from God, and then all of our disobedience flows from that bent of our nature. And then the misery of it, by their fall, all mankind lost fellowship with God, brought his anger and curse on themselves, therefore subject to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. That's one of the saddest statements um, in the history of the church, summarizing the teaching of Scripture. We've lost everything. You know, through our sin, really. It's what they're saying. We've lost everything. And we're subject to all the miseries and possibilities of, of, of misery that is, is known to mankind and that God can conceive. Um, so the, the point is, a relationship with God is so vital, so critical, that to abandon that is to abandon human life. You know, it's to abandon our humanity. It's to abandon everything that makes life have any meaning whatsoever. Um, and so mankind is, is viewed from Scripture as having abandoned this God. That, and, and this is why we talked a lot about His creation. This God that made us for Himself, that committed Himself to our good, to care for us, and to make us so that we could fellowship with Him and have Him, and we turned away from Him. You know, that's the horrible tragedy, that we had such a glorious... Uh, thing with God and we refused it. And then uh, the last part here, I'm going to let you all out a little early uh, because of this morning I got to do some things, but um, the last part on page 22 that we're helpless. We're so lost, the Word teaches, we can't change ourselves. We can't lift ourselves out of it on our own. We can't escape our basic condition on our own. We're a slave of sin, Scripture teaches. We're dead in our sin. So we have plunged ourselves into uh, a situation that we can't escape from because we're, we, we have made ourselves so that God is not attractive to us and we can't make Him attractive to us. You know, we, we, God is not beautiful to us and we can't make Him beautiful because He's just not. He, we don't desire Him and we can't make ourselves desire Him on our own. We've become that corrupt. And so, uh, John, uh, where Jesus is able to say, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So faith coming, uh, I should say, not in him but to him, will not happen apart from God's grace. 
So God's work in us is absolutely essential for us to come to Christ. And this is the measure of the extent of sin in our lives. So corrupted, Christ is so undesirable to us by nature. We will not come to him. We will not give our lives to him apart from his working in our hearts. We have that much distaste for Christ that we will not take him if left to ourselves. And that, to me, is one of the saddest things about us. We have that much distaste for God that we just won't have him unless God works in our hearts. So our sinfulness is a very ugly, ugly thing in its root. And so Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 2, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them. They're spiritually appraised. So it's a categorical statement, no exceptions. People by nature do not accept those things because they're ridiculous. Give my life up to Christ, bow down to one who died on the cross, admit my need, give up the reins of my life to God. No, that's crazy. I won't do it. You know, these things are foolishness to us by nature. They just don't register with us. They're not attracted to us in our natural state. So we just won't do it. We just won't. The natural man, the man apart from God, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. And of course, that means for us, if we have come to accept those things, it's because of a major miraculous work that God's done in our hearts. Because we never would have done it apart from Him. Um, So at the top of 23, Paul goes on to say, we cannot even understand them. They're only understood and appreciated and submitted to if we have the Spirit um, same thing in Romans 3. Uh, no one who understands, no one seeks for God, no one who does good. Um, as I say in here, uh, we don't see any real beauty of, in God. We don't see anything worthy of pursuit. Uh, and that all of us are in the same way. And then he concludes in 3.18 with this statement, there's no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear. People do not, and here's the meaning of fear is adoration, admiration, honor, and praise, and reverence. We're not, that's just not us. We're not naturally in awe and wonder over God. We don't naturally rejoice in Him and thank Him from the heart. We don't naturally serve Him and obey Him and sacrifice for Him. In other words, there's no fear of God in our hearts by nature. And so Paul can put it in Romans 8, the mind set on the flesh... The natural mind is hostile toward God. It doesn't subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. So our hostility is so bad, we're not even able to submit ourselves. And I say here, it's a way of saying we cannot bring ourselves to obey Him. You've heard someone say, I can't bring myself to forgive another person. I can't bring myself to speak to that person. We're saying, I can't bring myself to, to, to follow God. I just can't bring myself to do it. I just, I can't. I don't. I don't want him. By nature, that's what we're like. That's how corrupted we are. So, um, our time, well, let me just finish and we'll uh, we'll close up. But other passages, as I say at the top of 24, talk about these kinds of things, being enslaved or dead or being blinded uh, so that we can't see the beauty of Christ. And uh, the point meaning, as I say, He must save us from start to finish. He has to give us a new heart and put a new spirit. And I would urge you to look at these passages if you're not familiar with them. Uh, Ezekiel 36. 
He must cause us to be born afresh by His Spirit, as, as uh, Jesus teaches Nicodemus in John 3. Uh, Paul speaks of a new creation in 2 Corinthians, or he t- speaks of resurrection in Ephesians 2, or he speaks of shining in our dark hearts the glory of Christ. And he gives the analogy of creation itself. You see, what could creation do? God had to speak light into creation. And Paul says, just like that, God spoke the glory of God into our hearts, the glory of Christ. Otherwise, we'd still be, have dark hearts, you know. So it just shows from, the, from every aspect, every analogy, he's the one that has to work in our hearts. Even to the point that he has to give us faith. He has to give us repentance. He must open our hearts to receive his word as he did Lydia in Acts 16. And, sh- and it's, it's pretty simple. We're lost. He has to save us. Okay? We're helplessly lost. He has to come and save us. And if he doesn't, we're lost forever. So the benefits of this for us, it, number one, it promotes humility in our lives. We don't put ourselves at the center of the universe. We're not so quick to strike out at others for their sins against us when we realize the extent of our sin against God. We take the place of servants who've been forgiven a great debt. It helps to remove self-righteousness and pride. We no longer think we're better than others. We no longer put ourselves first. Now, that's the ideal, but that's the tendency of this teaching for us. It's not just a teaching, it's the reality. You know. But when we helplessly depend upon Him and realize that He had to come after us, it tends to bring about patience and love and forbearance and forgiveness in our regard to others and humility itself. And then secondly, it promotes a greater sense of the love of God. When we realize that he had to take the initiative, the first move, that he worked for us when we cared nothing for him, then we're all the more overwhelmed with his love. We'll talk about that in worship today, by the way, from Romans 5. But I love this hymn. It was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. So that love that spread the feast drew us in. If it hadn't, we would have refused to taste this feast, you see. It's a realization that God had to rescue me. Uh, I can't look down my nose at anyone. I'm so thankful that it tends to promote that thankfulness uh, toward God and and appreciation of His love. And then uh, number three, with this greater sense of His love, it helps us to give Him uh, all the glory all credit to his account. Um, we contributed nothing to our salvation, that he did it all. And page 25, this tends to bring us low and God high. It puts all the glory on God for salvation and leaves no glory for man. And that's the key, I think, to its unpopularity. We'd like to have a hand in salvation. We'd like the dignity that we had at least sense enough to make, to make the right choice. And we're offended by being told that we're so hopelessly lost we can do nothing to save ourselves. Um, And so anything that would teach us that we're thoroughly uh, lost is not going to be popular. It's not something we're going to swallow well. Um, And so the good news of of, uh, the gospel includes, this good news includes the news about our desperate situation because God wants to set us free from that. And God wants to set us free from our pride. And, uh, and so he has to do, he, he must reveal the reality of our situation to us. Um, 
And then lastly, this teaching creates the very faith that is needed to receive Christ. When you see that your condition is this serious and you can do nothing for yourself, it's the very thing that makes you just helplessly fall before him and say, save me. And really many, many times, people in their coming to Christ, it's more like a transaction. You know, okay, Jesus, I know you've done some things for me. I'm going to invite you to come into my heart and fix some of the things that are messed up and and then I'll go to heaven. You know, rather than, oh Lord, I'm lost, I'm helpless, I'm desperate, save me. And that's why I think the, the uh, analogies of the healings are so good to teach us. You know, where a, a man comes lame and says, Lord, heal me. I can't, I can't heal myself. I'm helpless. Lord, save me. Or those blind men on the side of the road, son of David, have mercy upon me. You know, there's the cry. Uh, that all of us must have, the helpless cry of dependence upon His grace. So, uh, we go next to the promise of Christ, um, but I hope you'll you know, think about these things and, and you know, hear God's Word. There, there's nothing better for our souls in preparation and connection with trusting and, and feeding upon Christ than to know how terribly we need Christ. Um, And so the Lord bless us all in that. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, ask you to uh, strike into our hearts continually, even as believers, to realize uh, at all times how helpless we are and yet how available your grace and salvation is to us. Keep us, Lord, from self-dependence. Keep us from uh, anything that would refuse Uh, and uh, that would cause us to refuse to trust helplessly in you. And, Lord, we we pray you would undermine all of the devices, the ways we keep away from you, or the the other things that we depend on instead of you, including our own righteousness. And may we demonstrate in our own love to others, our own tenderness, our own grace and humility and patience and kindness toward one another that, indeed, We are broken before God. We are helpless before Him. And we have tasted of His love. And that love has enriched and transformed our lives and is transforming our lives. Bless us, Lord, that we will live out the very love that we have received from Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.